I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Nate Langson and this text message was sent on the 4th of May 2015. Joining me this week to discuss the week's top UK technology news will be Ian Morris. And later on in the show, just days before the UK's general election, we'll be breaking down some of the key parts of the party manifestos to see some of the highlights from their technology policies. We'll also, as if this wasn't a technology podcast enough, have a full review of Apple's new MacBook, where I attempt to answer the question, why is the new MacBook better than an iPad Air with a decent keyboard, particularly when the Mac costs twice as much? Ian. How are you doing, my old sausage? I'm good, thank you, Nate. Despite the plethora of Windows-related problems that we do tend to have just before recording this program, I'm, I'm just using Windows 10 to sort of uh, get a, get a feel for it ahead of launch. But um, it, it, every week they do something, and every week it it doesn't necessarily break, but it just changes just enough that um, we're no longer able to podcast. Well, other things that have changed just enough include the news. Uh, This week, I'm going to start by talking about the Apple Watch. Oh no, say all the haters, but don't worry because this is going to be a fun one to talk about because according to a handy teardown provided, um, I got this via v3.co.uk, but the teardown was done by IHS Technology. It's found, or at least suggests, that the combined hardware cost of the Apple Watch to Apple is about £54. Um, which is interesting because the watch starts at retail at £299. Obviously, once you factor in R&D and years of development and what have you, you know that's part of the reason why the cost is so much higher. But it's very interesting to see the true cost of an Apple Watch, isn't it, Ian? It is, it is. But no one's surprised by this, are they? Surely. I mean, this is just the the way of the world. Things cost less and then, well, things cost an amount of money and then a company applies a profit margin to that and then that's how they make money. Apple Apple didn't get, how how many billion did it make in the last quarter? About 60. Yeah, it didn't make that from, you know, being a charity, did it? No, very, very much not. I think it's just interesting when we see these numbers come out. Um, I mean, we've talked in the past about the Beats headphones, uh, which, of course, is now owned by Apple. Um, but they weren't always. And, you know, the the average cost of a pair of Beats to manufacture is just a few dollars, Mm. you know, and yet they retail for in the hundreds, some of the models. But it's just fun to see something as as newsworthy as the Apple Watch being taken apart because, you know, we kind of, everyone sort of knows, I say everyone, People in the tech world can kind of describe the, the the top line components that go into a into an average laptop or, or something because you can build them yourself. But a but a watch and particularly a smart watch is a lot harder to quantify in your head, I think. And so mm. I personally, if you'd have asked me how much does a laptop cost to manufacture, you know, I could hazard a guess within a very wide threshold. But I honestly would not have a clue where to even guess at um at a, at a at an apple watch to be perfectly honest so i don't know even know whether i think 54 pounds or 83 dollars which is the original price ihs technology quoted is high or not but it seems to me to be probably a little higher than i would have guessed 
if I'm yeah, honest. Yeah, I, I, perhaps. But also, you've got to factor in here that there's a lot of other stuff at play, isn't there? You know, that someone has to sit down and design this thing. Johnny Ive isn't cheap, is he? Every well, he, minute he, of Johnny no. Ive's time must surely be worth several thousand pounds. This is this is definitely it. You know, this we're not even talking just him. I mean, we are talking hundreds and hundreds of employees working for several years on a product like this. And in order to turn a profit as quickly as Apple likes to, they do have to charge, uh, or rather, they can get away with charging quite a lot of money. Mm. But interesting one. Um, not much else to say on that. I just thought it was worth noting. And um, you can read the breakdown, I believe, on IHS Technologies website if you Google it. Or we'll have a link in the show notes on the topic of money staying on the topic of money rather an interesting revelation came out about amazon which is that it has doubled its free delivery minimum spend in the uk that however is only half the news and i'll get to the other half in a moment but this is the fact that amazon previously used to let you um get free delivery for items as long as they came to a total of 10 pounds in your delivery otherwise you had to pay for the delivery and it was called their super saver delivery service or something and it meant that you get three to five days shipping time um, but it was free however if you had prime all of those delivery charges go away now you have to spend a minimum of 20 pounds but here's the second half of the interesting news that i only noticed when i ordered a cd from amazon the other day you can if you are a prime subscriber which i am and you're not in a rush for your delivery you can opt for these free super saver delivery that takes about three to five days and you get a pound refund as a digital voucher to spend on yeah. Amazon. So when I said, yeah, I'm not in a rush for that, don't worry, I got a pound credit in my Amazon account. That's amazing. You only have to do that 70 times a year. 70, 79, isn't it? And you, you but, get free Prime. I just, yes, but... And I, and I sense that the, the, uh, the irony there uh, and the sarcasm in your voice, of course... But well, not I really. Think, I mean, no, no, no. Look, this is this is an interesting thing. I think this is really worthwhile because basically what they're saying here is, you know, you can pay for a service, but you can tell us if you're not in a rush and you don't have to get it next day. You just and here's an incentive to do that. Well, you're saving them money, aren't you? So it's a good idea. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I get it. I, I was only sort of partially being flippant, really, because, you know, if you did if you did buy a lot of stuff, you probably could make it work quite well for you, couldn't you? I mean, obviously, most stuff you want quickly. Most Otherwise, things. why would you have signed up for Prime in the first place? <laughs> well, that would be stupid. I didn't sign up for Prime. My brother did, and I'm on his account. So I mm. actually pay nothing, but I still got to take advantage of this, um, you know, refund for my lack of uh, expediency. Yeah, what, you're of... T- what you're trying to tell me is you're turning a profit on Prime. In a way, I suppose I am. Well, not in a way. In an actual fact, you yeah. are. Well, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm profiting off Amazon Prime. Thanks very much, Prime. Um, I don't know if this applies to absolutely everyone. I'm not sure what restrictions there are on it. I just happened to notice it literally like three days, three or four days ago um, when I was actually doing some shopping. And I thought I'm going to mention this on the podcast. So if anyone else has noticed this and taken advantage of it, maybe you can let us know if this has been around for a while. Do you do it all the time? Um, Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, that's going to do it for the news for this week. We've kept this deliberately quite brief because we do want to spend time talking about the election and the technologies that feature in their manifestos and their promises. That's coming up in a couple of moments. And then after that, we're going to have the full MacBook review, which I have completed and read Mm. for your audible pleasure. 
Um, but first, a quick reminder that you can leave us and continue to leave us fantastic reviews on iTunes. Thank you to everyone who's done so so far. It's making a huge difference. Um, as I mentioned last week, we've got over 55 star reviews at the moment, which is just tremendously exciting. And um, Ian and I are extremely grateful. Um, we sure are. And please remember, this is a uh, we have a very strong policy of helping a pod, helping a colleague get into podcasting. Um, it's a, a great idea if you enjoy the show and you have a colleague or a friend or a spouse um, or an enemy who you think would enjoy text message or indeed other podcasts. Why not help them install something like Pocket Casts or Downcast or any other podcast app and uh, and subscribe to text message and, uh, and maybe another show as well. That's a, a great way of showing your love um, for the program. So thank you very much. And obviously send us feedback podcast at natelangson.com we've got an email in mm. uh this is from somebody called matt who says nate no mention for you i'm afraid sir yeah excellent podcast don't <laughs> pod fade i shan't uh he says uh, i really want to get rid of my landline at the minute i've configured my broadband router to use air vpn so the whole house goes out to the internet protected and i can bypass any of that filtering nonsense it's brilliant and he ha- adds a note that i recommended air vpn to him uh, and he's very grateful for that. Now, I'm quite capable of setting up a routed Android phone to act as a wireless router and then VPNing out over 4G. And after last week's excellent review, I was looking at the BT Mobile deal when it became available. My my home broadband rarely gets close to 20 gigabytes, even with Sky on Demand, and this seemed really feasible. But no tethering? Balls! While I'm sure, in principle, it's against their terms and conditions, but with VPN, they won't know. Any thoughts? Cheers, Matt. So what Matt's doing here is commenting that he wanted to sign up to BT Mobile uh, because of our great review the other day for its 4G service, but then discovered he couldn't tether his devices to it and use his 20 gig any way he wanted. And would a VPN uh, sort of get around their terms and conditions? Um, Well, a VPN, to answer the question, probably won't make much of a difference because the restrictions on tethering is taking place normally between the phone and whatever device you're tethering rather than the phone and the network so it probably doesn't make any difference whether you use a vpn however if you can root an android phone and set up tethering that way which is possible i don't think there's any way for them to know to be perfectly honest the usual way that this gets um, detected is when people have unlimited data use policies and they eat up hundreds of gigabytes a month, which was the case on three. And um, and they tend to look at that. And then for the people that are causing massive network spikes, they can uh, can write to you and say, oi, it's sort of just in their terms and conditions to make sure they can cut people off if they're going over the odds. Um, but with this, you're only ever going to get as close to the data you've paid for anyway, so they probably won't give a damn. I, I would say go for it. I don't think you're at any great risk whatsoever. Um, and let us know how you get on, and hopefully we'll get an answer from BT, who I'm still nagging to explain why the hell they're not offering tethering. I've had at least five or six people get in touch and say, I would sign up for BT Mobile, but this tethering thing's stopping me, including mm. a colleague of mine at, at work who mentioned to me the other day the same the same problem after listening to the show. Um so yes, I will. Keep I think battling. I have a feeling it's a differentiator. You know, I think it's just so that I think EE maybe probably even said to them, "Well, we'll let you, but no tethering." Because having your limbs cut off is a differentiator. It's not a good one. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that, that, that's only because they could. They, they would do that if they thought they could get away with it. 
I mean, it, honestly, wouldn't, don't you think? If, if they really believed that there was a way for them to get away with coming to your house and cutting off a limb. There is no excuse for not offering, offering tethering as an option, even if you have to jump through the loophole of calling up and asking them to switch it on well, when you're it, on a limited contract where the data does not roll over month to month. It's just baffling. People have more than one device. They should not have to pay two contracts to well, use the same you, amount you're of data. Right. I mean, you are right, but I, I can understand why the rule exists. I'm not saying I would justify it. But keep those emails coming in, please. Podcast at natelangson.com. Com. Still to come later, the Apple MacBook review in uh, 10 minutes or so. But for our main topic this week, Ian, we want to talk about the election. We do. Um, now, this was your suggestion. Um, it was one that I, I'd thought about before now, but never really thought about doing on the show um, as a feature because it always felt like a very big thing to cram into a 10 or 15 minute segment. But you suggested we focus purely on the tech manifestos which yeah. I thought was a great idea and um, uh, Charles Arthur wrote a fantastic and detailed piece on The Guardian uh, a few days ago called What Do the Election 2015 Manifestos Say About Technology and hats off to Charles for putting all this together because um, we really are basically just going to rehash some of the points that um, that he he picked out in this article but um they're all directly from the manifestos so i didn't feel mm. that we we're being too cheeky but hats off to charles for putting this together um where shall we start ian well there's i, I tell you what we could do why don't we do do you want to do a quick bit about um electronic voting oh uh, yes because, of course because yes. i think it's in, i think it's an interesting point and i i know that there's there's not a huge you know, hatred of electronic voting amongst the um, the parties, but they all they all feel like it's a security problem, and I just I can't get my head around that. I can't get my head around the fact that with all of the minds in the whole world, we can't come up with a secure voting solution that um, that gives people a way of voting um, and is authenticated to be used once only um, and ideally by the right person, but without identifying that person. I can't can't believe in a world where Bitcoin exists, there's not a way for us to do this. Um, so, it, that, I mean, that's what, I don't know what you think about that, because I, I think that electronic voting may not make huge amounts of difference to, um, to you know, the number of people that turn out, but I think it would help engage the youth a bit more. Um, oh, and no, I also... Honestly, honestly, I mean, just to interrupt you there, I mean, you've asked the question. I think, I think the answer is, I think this would make a positive difference to how many, how many people vote i mean well it's not going to make it worse is it let's be honest because the voting turnout is a disgrace it's not very good i think the last last year was about 60 percent something like that i mean it should be in the the 80s or 90s really shouldn't it in a perfect world it would but the the other thing is that a lot of people who do turn out are are more conservative voters and i don't mean conservative party voters but it tends to be an older yeah i mean yes exactly small c conservative um I think when you look at the success of things like text voting on TV shows or the success mobile, I mean, Apple did this in a a brilliant way this week on the phone, not to talk about Apple again, but it is relevant, where I I looked at the App Store and there's a big uh, sort of icon to donate to the earthquake relief, Mm -hmm. uh, which I went into and, and gave money to straight through the app. Now, I hadn't gone in there to do it, but it prompted me. I was like, yes, this is important. Um, and I, I want to give some money to help them. And there it was, and it was done within a minute. And I think that that kind of integration, that reminder into our lives could actually help a lot of people who are maybe not apathetic. It's just not quite important enough for them to actually 
get out there and do it. Yeah. I mean, of course, there is a big. There, there would be a big investment cost in it, um, and of course, when you build something in IT terms, it's never going to last as long as a slip of paper would. You know, we can keep using the tech we use now because it's the most basic thing we've got. It's a, it's a mark on a bit of paper, um, and it didn't cost very much to implement. Mm. But at the same time, you know, I, I kind of think that well. It, 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 we need to do something, don't we? And, it, and we could have results instantly. Like we would, we'd be able to see on TV how the parties were doing without any waiting around. We would know by the end of the day, pretty much who was going to form the next government. Yeah, um, and we could get moving on it a lot quicker. I mean, I, we we may well have seen the last of a majority government in this country. We may never get to the point again where uh, a government gets enough votes to actually, you know, for one party to be the the sole government. So, from that perspective, knowing a bit more about it as it's developing is quite important. And you know, they can start the wheels of negotiation. But I agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some countries have experimented with internet voting. Like I think Australia, it's quite common in, 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 in countries where democracy is fairly new or, you know, I think probably that I, th- I, I do seem to remember it's been used in Africa, it, it, somewhere on the continent um, for, for voting um, and, and increases security. Because obviously, anytime you allow paper to move around, it's liable to be intercepted, isn't it? Let's talk about broadband. Um, this going back to um, Charles's article on The Guardian. He wrote that one thing almost all parties have in common is backing for superfast broadband, which is defined as service with speeds of 30 megabits or more. Now, that's that's it's hard to argue that's not a good thing. No, it, it, it's impossible to argue it's not a good thing. It, it just, I just find that again. I mean, this, this will be a theme. Unfortunately, it will be my my feeling that although it, it sounds like something that's good and it is, it's also something that's like I mean. It, the problem has never been, for most people, the speed of their broadband. You know, in, in most places, your broadband's quick enough. Yes. The problem is the people who live outside of those areas um, and have bad broadband. And and if it's not, uh, you know, physically important, you know, if it's not, sorry, if it's not physically easy to put broadband in, then it doesn't happen, does it? And that's still a problem. Like, there are still people languishing on sub-one megabit connections. There are, and this is actually something that the Scottish National Party, the SNP, mentions. It specifically referenced 4G across Scotland to support wider and affordable access to the internet in our most disadvantaged communities. The SNP pointed out that uh, we're investing in superfast broadband so that at least 95% of premises across Scotland will be able to access fibre broadband by the end of 2017. Um, well, here's a, here's a question for you, Nate. What about if instead of um, paying all that money for that high-speed rail link between you know, London and wherever, which will only ever serve a few people, I mean, obviously it will serve a lot of people, but it... it it doesn't really add anything to the people that live away from those areas. So why don't we just spend that money on getting fibre to as many people as we can? Like, we're talking about hundreds of billions, aren't we, over the course? I mean, it, it, there's no chance it will come in at less than 100 billion, is there really? By the time you finish building a rail link, you know, so what, imagine the, what we could do with that. And you need to pass a few laws as well, because part of the problem is a lot of people just an, are not allowed to work at home. Um, and we don't need people to be travelling the length and breadth of the country, do we? We need to be able to get them broadband so that they can sit at home in their pants and do their job just as effectively at home. I see your point. And as somebody who has both worked at home in his pants um, and who works in a company where we have a lot of 
kind of cisco style conferences with other bureaus and colleagues around the mm. world on like a video link there's nothing nothing that compares to being sat in a room like no, you know we've got yeah, some sure. of the most high-tech conferencing systems that i think exist in the generally available world and there is still nothing like flying over and being there in person like as ridiculous sure. as it sounds it does make a big difference no, no, no. and I, it's fine. It's it's not for everything, is it? It's just that I mean, there will always be the need to make those journeys, but you will spend time. You you would spend you'd happily spend more time travelling. You wouldn't matter if you had to spend two hours getting to London once a week if you could spend the other four days at mm. home. It, it's it, I mean, it, it it kind of it's it's just one of those things, isn't it? You it, it's kind of give and take, and we don't, we're wasting our own resources by travelling. Let's be honest. You know, we're we're, we're destroying the environment with cars and any kind of transport uses carbon doesn't it or creates carbon so we just should stop doing that so we should um uh, obviously when you've got a policy you have to pay for it somehow so we should talk about tax shouldn't we, should. we? um did, did you say did you did you just say the uh smp has suggested a tax break um to encourage gaming development yeah i did i didn't just i mean not just say it. i said it when we went recording no, but yes but- there is th- th- basically we have a tax break for the video game industry in play and the the snp wants to support that with something called the creative content fund which is from the video games industry and it mentions this quite early on in its manifesto and this is a quote it says to encourage the formation of new studios and also back the retention of the video games tax relief this is a really interesting one this was one of my favorite observations even though it is completely irrelevant to me as both a voter and a creator but this is basically a something of an acknowledgement that scotland is a creative hub when it comes to games and game studios like rockstar which make grand theft auto Mm. came out of scotland yeah yeah, absolutely so it's quite right that scotland should want to protect that and there are a number of mentions of uh, creative industries throughout the manifestos largely i mean there's a ukip has one which i actually kind of agree with which is promoting the fact that if we are allowing uh, people to study um sort of creative talents then we should be encouraging them to learn here but then also keep them here and and for i think they say five years after you know minimum of five years after getting the skills which i think is is actually a really good idea anyway regardless of who says it because the last thing that we want to do really is to encourage people to study here and then have other countries who have better tax relief or or what have your support for creative industries actually then welcome those people over there to sort of sort of uh, apply their their skills and their talents you know we should want those people to stay here making more great um games and game studios like we've seen over the last 20 odd years um absolutely we'll be in big trouble if we don't encourage a and you know a new set of industries yeah. tech particularly i mean otherwise you know there's we're not we're not mining coal anymore no, are we definitely so not but i think it's great to see that the that the SNP, you know, who who will have a, a large number of seats in Parliament, regardless of the outcome, because they always they always do, is, is going to have a strong voice in in you know this creative content fund and the video games industry in general and fighting there to to protect it because video games are such a huge industry, growing industry, and uh, you know we we want to make sure that Britain does really well with it. So. I'm, I'm mm. glad to see that that made an appearance. A couple of other small things I wanted to point out from these manifestos. Um, one is that 
the Greens have a particularly strong policy on copyright, uh, which actually caused a bit yes. of argument uh, recently. I don't know if you want to go over that in, in a moment, Ian. And the other thing that the Greens have said, and I wanted to read out a little bit of uh, this. Uh, in fact, I'm going to read an entire paragraph from the Greens about the mass surveillance issues. This is a quote. The, the Greens say they'll oppose any case for secret, unaccountable mass surveillance of the type exposed by Edward Snowden. We do not accept that government law enforcement agencies may occasionally need to intercept communications in specific circumstances. Such specific surveillance should be proportionate, necessary, effective, and within the rule of the law, with independent judicial, judicial approval and genuine parliamentary oversight. Uh, we would replace the Regulation of Investigatory Power, Powers Act 2000, which has failed. Now, there's some bloody strong words about, you know, the stuff that Edwin Snowden said. Yep, we're going to not do any of that. Yeah. That's strong. It is strong. And it, it, I mean, the, the problem is, I, I, I don't I don't want to stand up for governments spying on their citizens. But this always happens when people aren't in power. They say, hmm, yes, that's bad. We don't want to do that. And then they get into power and they're presented with a situation. And, and again, I, I don't believe that the amount of surveillance was entirely necessary. Um, but you, you, when you're given the opportunity to listen to what people are saying and potentially find, you know, talk about terrorism targets, then the temptation is just too great, isn't it, if you're a government? It's too easy to say, actually, we could save lives. And that's where the dilemma mm. comes in. Um, but of course, I, it, you know, we all know that that's not what was going on. And there are other ways to do surveillance that don't involve mass listening to civilian conversations. Indeed. Indeed. Well... Uh, and the Green Party on um, on copyright is they wanted to reduce uh, copyright down to fourteen years, didn't yes. they? So, you you know, Harry Potter would already be out of uh, copyright, wouldn't it? Which would be an interesting situation. You see, I, I mean, as much as I would like to see a a more flexible copyright structure, fourteen years does seem to be a little low. You know, well, it's currently the life of the artist plus. 75 years yeah. you know, it's the it's the disney thing isn't it basically every every time mickey mouse comes close to um popping out of copyright disney spends a bit of money talks to some uh, politicians in america and gets it extended and you know when when the americans have got copyright we, there's nothing anyone else can do about it is there really i mean um i think what, perhaps the the way to appease people maybe i mean there could be some sort of thing where you do a phased thing so maybe you get 20 years of you know taking the money and then maybe you you enforce some kind of derivative works thing where people can you know use it after that time in to some extent um and if they make money out of it they have to share it with you kind of or, i don't know the copyright copyright's rubbish because it's not very flexible that's what's so great about the creative commons you know i do not think yeah. creative commons is always good for all people uh, it is quite complicated i mean copyright by its nature is also very complicated um i don't think that creative commons is is visible or accessible or trustable by enough of a you know a large enough group of people yet to be considered a, a strong enough alternative to copyright and i know that people who listen to who really champion creative commons uh would think that that's a ridiculous thing to say but i mean in terms of going out to the street finding an author or or book publishers or whoever and you know the difference between not having government support for it and having government support for it 
could be huge. I would love to see Creative Commons more yeah. widely adopted and more visible. I'd love to see it on mainstream book releases and and have a, a government-backed mm. um, strategy for something like that because that has the real power to change how people license their own work and say, look, copyright isn't right for me. I want to do this. And at the moment, it's just not easy enough for people to learn about it uh, and trust it. And I think a government that champions something like Creative Commons could um, could be in a good position. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no rules against making money out of your product that's been Creative Commons licensed. And uh, there are enough restrictions available to you with a Creative Commons product that means you can keep control of it. Um, it just means you get a bit more flexibility than you, you know, get, it means people can, like you say, the artists who make these things can choose, yeah, can't they? Yeah, exactly. Last thing that I wanted to mention before we wrap up here, because um, I wanted to mention something that isn't in the manifestos uh, and it just seems to be widely ignored and is wrong to be so widely ignored. And that is the issue of net neutrality. Um, this is something that affects basically every internet subscriber, every internet-based company. And the, the, the fact is that there are parts of the world, rather there are companies, large companies in parts of the world, who want to charge other companies for priority access to their customers. Uh, these companies are called ISPs, internet service providers. You've got one. I've got one. Ian's got one. Ian and I've got the same one, Virgin. And mm. the argument here is that when somebody like Netflix can, at peak internet times, use as much of a third of all internet traffic, which it does, then ISPs should be able to charge Netflix for the bandwidth given to them to be able to reach their customers. Uh, if that was in play, it would allow the ISPs themselves to offer priority access to their own customers, which would mean basically um, they could sh they could uh, compete with Netflix by offering cheaper uh, alternatives to the same product because they own both the, the, the product and the connection to your house. Um, and it would mean that Netflix, in order to compete, would probably have to put its either put its prices up to cover the cost the ISPs are charging them, which obviously would make them less competitive, or would have to take the hit on revenue, uh, which in itself may damage its future. So keeping net neutrality around means fairness for every single person. It means that companies can come up with innovative new ideas, startups, businesses can go from being very small to very big very, very quickly and not have to worry about suddenly being slapped uh, either by a bill from an ISP to reach the customers it's worked to reach um, or to have to basically uh, get pushed out of the market by copycats who maybe have more money to um, pay those ISP bills and a range of other scenarios. And I think that it's a shame that something yeah. so big that affects so many people that is already of massive visibility in the US because they have a, a much more controversial system when it comes to broadband providers. A lot of places in the US, you only have one choice of internet provider. Um, net neutrality over there has been a massive debate in, in Parliament. That's in Parliament in... Um, it's the equivalent over there. Congress, Congress. thank you. Um, and, and it's been at the forefront of a lot of political debates, whereas here, you know, I've gone through manifestos, I've gone through people's write-ups of manifestos, and I just, I, I can't find any really strong 
argument from any of them that net neutrality is is going to be even acknowledged, let alone protected. And I think that any party that came out and strongly supported net neutrality and, and an equal playing field for for all internet businesses and consumers. I mean, that's a huge voting group of people right there that you could get a huge amount of support from. Um, and and it's, it doesn't seem to be very visible at all. And I wanted to highlight that. No, I think... I think- well, I think because we've not struggled with it quite so much as the Americans have. There's, they, back in the day, when, when bandwidth was a bit more expensive, <clears throat> excuse me, there was um, there were a lot of ISPs were very unhappy about the BBC because of iPlayer and the amount of bandwidth it can use. Um, but actually, it, it's sort of got to the point now where bandwidth is cheap enough that it isn't so much of a problem. And, and I once uh, I once spoke to someone at Virgin who told me that they things like that don't bother them at all. Downloads really don't trouble their network. It's the only things they have problems with the torrents because um, they saturate the network. And it's not uh, it's not a sort of an ethical issue. It's an issue of just practicality and how the system works. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'd like there to be some protection there. I don't want someone to suddenly wake up one day and go, hmm, we could charge uh, Netflix for access to our, our fast network because I think that's bad. Um, but uh, we haven't struggled with it. Um, so much, but that doesn't mean we can't be mm. ready. And we haven't visibly struggled. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background that we just don't know about. A lot of negotiations about yes. network access priority, even when it comes down to you know how peering works and edge caching and all this kind of stuff. Like there are a lot of arguments that go on behind the scenes. Um, it might not be quite as grand as Netflix is adding you know two three pounds a month onto its subscription bill to compensate for the fact that net neutrality doesn't exist anymore or there's a tiered internet but just i don't know network a, a flat network in the uk is important to protect and i don't think that it's yes currently being promoted as a thing to worth being protected in the manifestos but that will do for politics uh, by this time next week the election will be done uh we'll have a, a wonderful hung parliament uh, it'll be a lot of fun hey, yeah. and you know we'll all see how that that turns out uh, but let us know your thoughts on all of this podcast at natelangson.com um, any points you have heard obviously by the time we put the next show out as I say the election will be in the past but that doesn't mean that it's not worth us continuing that conversation in another week's time so do um, do fire comments in if you have them. Well, the last section in today's show, it's going to be a review of Apple's new MacBook. We had a bit of a preview last week when Andrew was on from CNET, I just talked about some first impressions. I've now had two weeks in total to um, to use the device. I've been using it um, as my main machine now for a fortnight. Hopefully, I've got enough conclusive points in the review uh, to close a few questions with full stops. But there are definitely some question marks still outstanding about the future of Apple's line of laptops. Why is the new MacBook better than an iPad Air with a decent keyboard attached, particularly when the Mac costs twice as much? That's the question I've been trying to answer during the last two weeks of using Apple's new 2015 MacBook. Its gold exterior, at least in the case of my review sample, works in partnership with its ridiculous lack of thickness to make you feel like the centre of attention amongst colleagues. It's what Apple expertly demonstrates time and time again, produce products with designs that cause mouths to expand. But in this case, as is so often also the case, it also lengthens the effect with price. A thousand quid! That's more than a MacBook Air! Some mouths ultimately splutter. That's enough to buy a MacBook Pro. 
In fact, the entry-level MacBook featuring a 1.1 gigahertz Intel Core M processor, 8 gig of RAM and 256 gig of storage costs more than every MacBook Air currently on sale. And to drizzle some sodium into the proverbial gash, it's nowhere near as powerful as the Air, nor does it offer the Air's connectivity such as USB 2 or Thunderbolt to support Apple's own Thunderbolt displays. Its integrated Intel 5300 graphics are subpar compared to the Air's use of Intel 6000 series graphics, and even its front-facing camera has been reduced from 720p on the Air to standard def 480p on the new MacBook. It's a product of bizarre paradoxes. It lacks the power, connectivity, and lower price of the MacBook Air, but the resulting focus on just the essentials belies its fitting comparison to the iPad Air by costing more money than them all. It really is a difficult argument to have with yourself for two straight weeks. How is this justified? Why would I not be better getting either an iPad Air and pairing it with a decent keyboard, or spend the same cash on a MacBook Air? And I have no one-size-fits-all answer here. But what two weeks of daily usage has taught me is that the 12-inch fanless slice of aluminium feels not like what an iPad Air is today with a keyboard, but tomorrow's off-rumoured iPad Air Pro with a keyboard. It's uncanny how this device feels like the screen should be detachable in order to function as a large iPad, how it should connect to the thin little golden keyboard using some sort of uniquely named Apple magnet technology. What sets it apart initially from the iPad Air is the two-inch larger screen, the ability to properly multitask, something the iPad really can't do in a work environment as comfortably as a laptop, the half-terabyte internal storage options, the full-size keyboard and large gesture-supporting trackpad. It's just better with those things, and as someone who's normally tethered at the hip to an iPad during 95, I can say this with confidence, the new Mac is just better than an iPad Air at multitasking. But so is a MacBook Air, and that costs £300 less, and is more powerful, and has better connectivity, and graphics, and is comparably portable still. Yes, all true. For me, I discovered, though, that I didn't need any of the connectivity while I was reviewing it. My iPhone syncs across Wi-Fi, and the daily photos that I take on the iPhone or the iPad sync wirelessly to the MacBook as well over Wi-Fi. I also didn't need to connect it to a larger monitor because I was deliberately using it as a portable little notebook and not as a workstation replacement. In return, I had a smaller device to carry around between meetings and from the office to my home, even versus the MacBook Air. I did away with the cooling fan, meaning I got to use a laptop that was completely silent no matter how hard I hammered its processor. I got a high-resolution Retina display, which the MacBook Air lacks currently. And I still got brilliant battery life, lasting from 8am to 7pm on one charge on one day of my testing. During that time, I used it for Evernote in several meetings, some light web browsing, a bit of Logic Pro 10 to review the, and edit a podcast, some short audio encoding of a complete podcast edit. I was tethered to 4G while I was using it, using Safari, updating my reminders apps, downloading some apps and updates, and I used Final Cut Pro 10 for some basic single clip edits. I also sent a bunch of emails, and I left the machine idle for a couple of hours in total as well. In short, a decent full work day on battery power alone. The hidden fact here, though, is performance. There's no way to hide it from a review. This is not a powerful computer. While it can technically multitask, it does so at a snail's pace. It has enough RAM to ensure demanding apps can function, but it does not have the processing power to make them function quickly. Apps take a couple of seconds longer to load, for example. Boot-up times, while still quick, are noticeably longer than on Apple's other laptops. 
I tested the graphics performance with The Elder Scrolls Online, a relatively new fantasy video game. I could get to a playable 20 frames per second, but I had to set the game to play at a low resolution and with almost all graphical flourishes, such as shadows and advanced lighting, turned off. It allowed me to wander around the fantasy landscape over a lunchtime sandwich, but only a truly dedicated fantasy gamer would consider that fun. Older games, such as Half-Life 2, run very well even at high graphic settings, so if your game's library hovers around the 2004-era titles, consider the MacBook an adequate little gaming machine for your lunchtime escapism. To briefly talk in numbers, the MacBook scored 4531 in my Geekbench benchmarking test, which grades a device's performance using a number of tests. For comparison, a recent MacBook Air gets between 5500 and 6300. A MacBook Pro can get above 11,000. Here's a fun fact. When I reviewed Apple's iPad Air 2, it scored 4484, compared to 4531 on the MacBook. Now, it should be noted that we're not comparing apples to apples, so to speak. The Mac and iPad use completely different processing architectures and chips, graphics chips and memory. But it is at least interesting, I think, to see the overall difference of output scores between the two systems. It made my ability to differentiate the two in this review just that little bit harder. But as the fabled short-changed gentleman once said, it's not what you've got that matters, it's what you can do with it. And in this case, the MacBook's iPad-like horsepower and fanless design gives me the ability to multitask and be as productive as I need to be while preventing me from thinking I'm carrying around anything bulkier than an iPad with a keyboard case. It comes at a price, yes, but the selling point versus the MacBook Air is the larger high-resolution screen and the bigger trackpad that doesn't feel cramped in a way that, say, going from a MacBook Pro to a MacBook Air's trackpad does. It's an expensive machine, but only relatively so while the MacBook Air stays on sale. It's clear this model is technically superior in most ways to the Air, and I would begin counting down the days to the Air's demise. If I was a betting man, I'd say we're less than 12 months away from the 12-inch MacBook and a future 14-inch version, replacing the 11-inch and 13-inch MacBook Airs respectively. A price drop is inevitable and would allow Apple to have a £899 12-inch MacBook like this sitting underneath the entry-level £999 13-inch MacBook Pro. Today though, it's something of an expensive anachronism. The future of Apple's consumer laptops that only look out of place while customers breathe the final air. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, Let us know all your thoughts, of course, podcast at natelangson.com. Please leave those reviews on iTunes. Much appreciated. And uh, you can tweet me at at natelangson and Ian at ianmorris78. That's right. I've still got such a good... It used to be at Ian 9 out of 10, I think, didn't it? It did. Yeah, but don't use that. Pain in the ass to remember. It's it's still there, but it doesn't do anything. (laughs) Cool. Okay, well, until next week... Toodle Pip. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.